Thank you, Carter. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Paul, and I'm a young alcoholic in an old container. <laughs> you probably thought this was an early bird meeting on the Young People's Conference. It really isn't. <clears throat> I didn't have a particularly happy childhood, but it has lasted a long, long time. I've known Carter for a good while. I just recently found out that he spent two terms in the eighth grade, Hoover and Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, back when he was drinking, before he got married, Carter was out one evening, and he met this attractive young lady at the bar. She said, would you like to buy me a drink? And he said, well, I'm no John D. Rockefeller, but I'll buy you a drink. A little more time passed. She said, would you like to dance? And Carter said, well, I'm no Fred Astaire, but I'll dance with you. A little later, she said, would you like to go home with me? And Carter said, well, I'm no Don Juan, but I'll go home with you. Several hours passed, and as he was getting ready to leave, she said, how about some money? Carter said, well, I ain't no gigolo, but I'll take it. <laughs> I brought you a little snow from Chicago, and... Glad to bring anything I can from there. <laughs> Last week, somebody stole a fire engine, and three hours later, he was arrested by some guy who just stole a police car. <laughs> I can see that at least part of the committee has recognized the close correlation between no hair and high spiritual development. <laughs> I've enjoyed the talks, and as I was listening to Eddie last night, I thought... What a fine-looking head. Because <laughs> he said he's had some trouble getting arrested for indecent exposure. Anytime he goes out of the house without a hat on, he's in danger. <clears throat> he didn't tell you about the hair grower he used a while back. He used it for six months. He only grew one hair, but it weighed eight pounds. <laughs> Recently, I learned the anthropological background of baldness. When the world was very new, the Lord looked down one day and he saw all kinds of heads. He saw big heads and little heads and round heads and square heads, fat heads and thin heads, and all those heads he didn't like, he covered up with hair. When Eddie was younger, he studied to be an artist, but he gave it up. He gave it up because he wanted to paint this beautiful model in the nude, and she wouldn't let him. She made him put on his bathrobe. It's <laughs> so once a little old lady who had a parrot, and all the parrot learned how to say was, Who is it? And all day long, he went around the house saying, Who is it? Who is it? And one day, she went out shopping. She'd been gone a little while, and there was a knock at the door. The parrot said, who is it? And the voice said, it's the plumber. The parrot said, who is it? The man said, it's the plumber. The parrot said, who is it? He said, it's the P-L-U-M-B-E-R plumber. The parrot said, who is it? The man said, listen, you said it was an emergency. I dropped everything. I rushed over. Now quit fooling around and let me in. It's the plumber. The parrot said, who is it? That was too much for the poor man, and he fainted dead away. A moment later, the little old lady came home. She looked down. She said, who is it? The parrot said, it's the plumber. <laughs> well, this morning, it isn't the plumber. It's your old dad. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say... Thy kingdom come. And there's something that runs corollary with that. And that is, my kingdom go. And I've had a great deal of problems with that since I've been sober. Because I have a great deal of trouble with wanting my own way. In my experience, there's only one thing worse in my life than not getting what I want, and that's generally been getting what I want. But... I've had a lot of trouble since I've been sober trying to be smarter than I actually am. And after I'd been sober for a while, I got into that kick that a lot of us do. 
I became a mystic and a philosopher and a theologian, all without portfolio. And I read everything I could find on the spiritual life because I was sure that I was destined to vault up into the spiritual stratosphere where I had always belonged. Quite a bit of time passed, and all that happened was I developed a metaphysical hernia. I strained myself spiritually, and I came back and I began to read the big book with new eyes and a new understanding. It's sometimes said with unfortunate accuracy that if you want to hide something from an AA member, the best place to put it is in the big book. I find in this volume just about everything I need to live and everything I need to become what I am supposed to be. There's a pudgy poet around Chicago named Victor Bono, and he says that being thin is where it's been, but being fat is where it's at. Well, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I know that where it's at for me is in the big book. The last half of the last story... The last half of the last paragraph of the last story says, I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get, and when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. And that has been my experience. I came into AA with two major handicaps. Too much religious education and too much secular education. I come from a long line of Lutheran ministers, and in spite of that fact, I believe in God today, and it is not easy with that background. <clears throat> and I had too much secular education. I had the misfortune to get educated way beyond my intelligence. And after I got sober, I thought, ho, ho, now watch me. And a great deal of time passed, and I got into what I described a little earlier, and I read everything on the spiritual life, and there's a great deal of material here, and I don't say it's all bad, but I looked for answers before AA and looked in many of those same areas after I got sober, and finally came to the conclusion that for me the big difference is that these people describe a goal, and so does AA. And it's summed up in step 12, a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And as Eddie said, spiritual, not religious. But AA, with the goal, gives me something that these other people did not. It gives me a way, a method, to get from where I am to where I am supposed to go, one step at a time. And that's what I experienced today, and that's part of what I have to talk about today. Because AA speaks to my condition wherever I am in sobriety. These other things, I would read them and I would say, that's tremendous. They would tell me how I was supposed to be, and I was supposed to be honest, and sane, and useful, and unselfish. And I could never find the way to get from where I was to this condition, which is where I wanted to be before AA and since. But gradually I began to understand that if I will use this program and use it again and again and again, all of the steps, these steps will change me. They're circular, and each time I go through them, at a different time in my life, in a different period of sobriety, they will give me the answers and the help and the power to change, which I do not have within myself. I came into AA and I believed in nothing. I was a fallen away atheist. Today... I believe in God, and I believe in this program, and I believe in you people, and I could not separate one from the other. When I came to AA, you held out your hands and you said, how can you help? And you've done that every day of my life since. What I know about living, I've learned from you in meetings and in this fellowship and out of this big book. And this is where it's at for me, and this is where it remains. Because those other things are, are great except somehow or other they never spoke to my condition in the way that this program does. It was a lot like the man who was giving the talk on how to raise baby chicks, and he said when the chicks are one day old, you separate the male chicks from the female chicks. The little old lady raised her hand, she said, how do you tell the male chicks from the female chicks? He said, you feed them worms, and the male chicks eat the male worms, and the female chicks eat the female worms. 
She said, how do you tell the male worms from the female worms? He said, lady, I'm an expert on chickens, not worms. <laughs> and that's about how it always came out. You know, I've been sober a good while before I found out, and I found out because somebody else told me, that on page 63 it suggests taking step three aloud with another human being. And here's what it says. As a suggested prayer, <clears throat> God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And on page 76, it has a prayer that I can use when I take step seven because I try to take all of these steps fairly regularly. And it says, My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. I came into an AA area where they said you work the first, six, the first nine steps once, and then you work 10, 11, and 12. And I worked on that basis for a number of years. And after I'd been sober a good while, I re ran into the view that if you will periodically, if I will periodically redo all of these steps, rewrite an inventory, take another fifth step, take another look at my amends and see what I have to do, that this will help me in ways that I will not be helped simply by trying to work with 10, 11, and 12. And I was sober 16 years when I started to do this. I got sober when I was 25. You'd probably figure that I'm only sober two or three years at this point, but I am sober a little longer. <laughs> I've been sober about 26 and a half years, and I only mention that because I'm bragging. <laughs> Some people have said that an old-timer in AA is a guy who's sober so long, he's afraid the new man might throw up on him. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> but I know that I've got to work harder today in this program than I ever did. And when I was sober 16 years, I had done a thorough job with these first nine steps about the first year or two I was sober. And I did write out a new inventory, and I took another fifth step, and I found that this was tremendously different than trying to work with the tenth step. And I began to do this fairly frequently, and I began to see and understand that this program will do things for me that nothing else will that I have ever found in my life. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm very grateful to be an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to find this way of living which does answer my problems and my needs. And gradually and very slowly, the timetable is far slower than mine, will enable me to become what I am supposed to be. I don't know why I'm an alcoholic, but I know that this was a great blessing because it's given me everything that I really wanted. And I never used to know what I wanted. I only knew that whatever I had at any particular time was not what I really wanted. But I find that the program is, is very unindividual. Keep it simple does not mean keep it superficial. It means recognizing the chance I have to change. I don't think it requires special therapy groups. I think it simply requires a recognition of where my help really lies. My trade is marketing and public relations. That's a field in which we're frequently wrong but never in doubt. I write for a living, and sometimes I have a little confusion mistaking words for ideas. And they are things that will only work if I experience them. Experience is where it's at, and I can experience these changes by working these steps. Now, a while back, I was writing an article, and I called a friend of mine who's research professor of psychology at the University of Illinois, Dr. Hobart Maurer, who has extensive clinical experience working with alcoholics. And he knows a great deal about AA. <clears throat> and I said, what do you think about psychotherapy for the sober alcoholic? And Dr. Maurer said, if the alcoholic will use the 12 steps and develop the possibilities of fellowship within the program, this will be far more effective than any kind of psychotherapy I know anything about. And I said, amen. 
because he sums up precisely what nearly 40 years of AA experience clearly demonstrates. Number one, the AA program enables drunks to stay sober. Number two, the 12 steps are specifically designed to help us change those things that turn out to be wrong with us when we quit drinking. And number three, AA does this far more effectively than anything else on the scene today. In looking at counseling or therapy, it's important for me to remember that AA is where the clergymen come to find God's help to stay sober. And Alcoholics Anonymous is the place that psychologists and psychiatrists come to find the kind of group therapy that will keep them away from the first drink and bring order to their lives. If the quality of my life is not what it should be, the best place for me to go for therapy or counseling is to the big book or to an AA member who has done enough continuing work with these 12 steps to understand that what how it works means is that this is how it works. And I'm amazed at how long it took me to figure that out. But it's all here. It would be ridiculous to suppose that I could live on the food I ate 10 years ago, the water I drank five years ago, or that the exercise I took two years ago would make me healthy today. And I think it is equally ridiculous to suppose that I can live on the work I did on all of these 12 steps 10 or 20 years ago today. I have to continue to do all of these things. I have to work harder today, and I think that's all right because I am able to work a little harder. But everything I need I find right here in these meetings with you people and in this big book. I know how it works today, and it's very, very simple. And it's described in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, and it deals with rigorous honesty, an area in which I've had a great deal of trouble with honesty other than lying and stealing, has been in talking beyond my condition, in trying to talk about things that I had never experienced, trying to talk about spiritual states or things like that. Again, the only thing I can talk about honestly is me, where I'm at today, to the best of my ability. I think it's ridiculous to suppose that I can understand God unless I have done enough continuing work with inventories and fifth steps to begin to know myself. Rigorous honesty is where it turns. I've had some experience with the therapeutic communities for drug addicts, Daytop Village in New York, Gateway House in Chicago, and these are offshoots of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were started by an AA who began Synanon out in California. And the story I understand is he used to talk so much in meetings that people told him to shut up. So he finally got a room somewhere and he got all these junkies who'd come around and he let them stay on the condition that they would listen to him talk as much as he wanted to. <laughs> I'll tell you, that really sounds like an alcoholic. <laughs> but they work very heavily with the tools of honesty, integrity, responsibility, trying to help others. And about a year ago, I was over in... New York, at Daytop Village, the president of the board is Monsignor William O'Brien, and he took me to a couple of facilities upstate, and he was telling me about the role that honesty plays in the recovery of these drug users. He told me a true story about a father who'd come up there to see his son. The father and mother had not seen their boy for nine months, and he was telling O'Brien about it later, and he said, you gave us our boy back. It's tremendous. I went to shake hands with him, and he brushed my hand aside he threw his arms around me and he said he loved me. And he hasn't done that for years. The father said, there's one thing that bothers me. He said, he can't work for me anymore. And I asked him why. And he said, it's because I cheat. The father was a butcher on the Lower East Side of New York and he kept his thumb on the scale because he competed with the A&P and Gristides. Son said, we can't do that and live. The father said, I don't know what to do. They have a parents group, which is like Al-Anon. Now, Brian said, why don't you throw it out on the floor in your next meeting? And the, boy, the father did. And the father came out of there with two commitments. One was that he would no longer cheat. He would go out of business first. 
The other commitment was that for the first three days he was back in his store, he was going to tell every customer that came in that he had been cheating them. How do you like that for amends? I guess that's known as going to any lengths. So Brian saw him two weeks later. He said, how did you come out? Father said, let me tell you. <laughs> he said, I told everybody that came in for the first three days that I had been cheating them, and they threw their arms around me, and they cried. They said, such an honest man in New York they've never seen. So it worked out fine. But I know that this is an indication of the depth of the commitment to honesty and these are the only people that really do anything for drug addicts, and they do it purely on the basis of stop lying, ch stop cheating, stop stealing, get open with people, and try to be responsible. And I've seen some things in my own experience in AA that are just the kinds of things that you've seen. Because I've seen people sober quite a while who were in very bad shape because they had either done no work with the steps or they had done very little work. They had fallen prey to that beguiling fallacy that this is an individual program and you can throw out whatever you want. When I read this big book, I find all kinds of musts in it. It says, son, you better do it or you're going down the tube. I know a man who's sober 13 years. Two and a half years ago, with two, ten and a half years of sobriety, he was completely out of his mind. He was in absolutely awful condition. And he didn't know what to do, and he started to work the steps. And he started to take inventories and fifth steps and taking step three aloud with other people. He wrote out a list of people he had harmed, and he made amends to them, and he has continued to do these things. Two and a half years later, with 13 years of sobriety, he's in great condition because the program works for us if we use it wherever we are in sobriety. I know a man who was around AA for 14 years, and he never could stay sober. He never did anything with the steps, and two years ago he began to work the steps. And he's worked at them and tried to live honestly since, and he's done these things, just as the book says. And he hasn't had a drink for over two years, which is the longest he's been sober since perhaps the age of 15. I know a man who a year ago was sober 17 years and completely out of his mind. For the last five or six years, he'd been frightened and depressed and anxious, scared all the time. He couldn't sleep. He had difficulty working. He went to a great many meetings. He had never done any of these things in the book. He'd never written out a list of people he'd harmed because everybody told him that you make amends just by staying sober. He'd never bothered with the fourth and fifth step because he'd heard that you didn't really have to do this. You just go to meetings, stay active. And there's a big difference in my book between activity and action. Activity is going to meetings and being involved in things. Action is working these steps and enabling this program to work on me and change me and become what God would have me be. Last March, this man with 17 years of sobriety began to do these things in the program, and he did all of them. <clears throat> and he's done a number of fourth and fifth steps. He's made his amends. He wrote out that list. Today, 11 months later, with 18 years of sobriety, he's in excellent condition as a result of what these steps did. I know a woman who was around AA for two and a half years. She never could stay sober, and she never did any of these things. And finally, in desperation, she began to try to follow the directions, and she did precisely these things. She hasn't had a drink for nine and a half years because this program works. <clears throat> I know a man who's sober 11 and a half years, and a year and a half ago, with 10 years of sobriety, he was in the same shape as these other people I described. And he began to use these steps and began to work this program. And today, he's able to work effectively, he's calm, he's sane, and has a tremendous message to carry to other people. Because the message is just not that I don't drink anymore. The message is that I have found a way of living that answers my problems wherever I am, in my life or in sobriety. And all I have to do is continue to work all of these steps and these steps will help me. I have a permanent disease. I'll be an alcoholic as long as I live. So it seems to me that the treatment had better be permanent also. It would be really stupid to think that I could get by on the work I did in the past any more than I could get by on the food I ate in the past. I've had a lot of problems with myself. 
It's a surprise to no one who knows me that I've got a great problem with my ego. But I find that if I'll stay with you people and when I get off the track, you'll put me back on the track because you'll tell me the truth that I don't always want to hear. But I have to associate with people who love me enough to tell me the truth even when it is not palatable to me because I have a great capacity for self-deception. But there is truth in AA which transforms us. I've long thought that this program has flourished and grown in spite of us, not because of us. Well, these are all things I've learned since I got sober. I didn't start out to be an alcoholic. I grew up in a little town down in southern Georgia, about 50 miles from the Okefenokee Swamp. It was too small to have a village idiot. We all just used to take turns. Down there, if you order a martini, the waitress asks if you want a regular or a deluxe. They're the same size, but with a deluxe martini, you get grits. <laughs> Need a little water. After about four hours, my throat gets kind of scratchy. There wasn't much doing around there. It was so dull that if you took LSD, you'd have had visions of Lawrence Welk. But when I was pretty young, I found out that if I drank the right amount, my life changed. Now, I don't know when I became an alcoholic. I know that when I was eight or nine years old and there was a little beer or wine and a glass around the house, I used to snap up a gulp or two. And I know that when I was 12, I used to pick the lock on my aunt's liquor closet. And I'd take her whiskey bottle and take a drink and then I'd put in some water so she wouldn't know anything was missing and locked the closet again. I don't know where I learned that trick. I think it was from some previous alcoholic incarnation. <laughs> I've got a friend on the program. He says that if transmigration is true and he comes back as a dog, his wife is going to come back as a flea. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It always reminds me of the man I ran into some years ago who was celebrating two years of sobriety. He said, when I came on this program, I had a drinking problem and a marriage problem. AA straightened out my drinking problem. My sponsor ran off with my wife, which straightened out my marriage problem. So this program will work if you let it. Now, alcohol is funny to us, but there are some tragic things connected with it. The most tragic story I can ever recall was of the compulsive beer drinker who finally achieved his life's ambition. He got a job in a brewery. And he worked there for three weeks, and he drowned in one of the vats. At the wake, his wife rushed up to the foreman. She said, the only thing that concerns me is that my husband may have suffered before he died. The foreman said he didn't suffer a bit. In fact, he got out of the vat three times to go to the men's room. probably heard about the one-armed man who went in for the shave from the alcoholic barber who had this terrible hangover and he was shaking so badly he cut the man on the nose and on the ear and on the chin he stepped back and said say haven't I shaved you before the man said no I lost this arm in a sawmill accident When I was much younger, I was very interested in sports. I majored at, in them at seven colleges <laughs> and also in high school. I got drunk the first time when I was 14. And something happened at some level, a switch turned, and I knew that regardless of anything else I had in my life, I needed this. I didn't have to develop my brain or my personality or anything else. I just needed the price of what was in this bottle and I could survive. As Carter says, I never could remember names till I took that Dale Carmichael course. <laughs> but I knew I didn't need the Dale Carmichael course. All I needed was the price of what was in that jug. <clears throat> and I pursued this, this with some skill. I was interested in many sports. My favorite sport was boxing. I wanted to be middleweight champion of the world. And I think perhaps I would have been, except I couldn't whip anybody. 
my ability never equaled my hostility, and I found that was quite a handicap. <clears throat> but I worked hard <clears throat> at many sports, and I finished high school. And I can remember when I was 15 or 16, friends of mine would talk to me about my drinking. And these were friends, and they tried to talk to me, and I had the same flip answers that I always had. I finished high school, and I started the first of a procession of colleges, and I lasted there a year and a half. That was near Atlanta. And I left there, and I started a college near Chicago, and I stayed there a year and a half. I was boxing for a club on the west side of Chicago, and I got my nose broken again. I had passed the flight physical for the Navy flight training program. This was World War II, in case anybody wonders if it was the Spanish-American. <laughs> but after I passed them, I'd gotten one side of my nose broken, so I had to go to the hospital and get that operated on. I got drunk in the hospital that night. I started blacking out when I was 19 or 20. I went to service, and I was a cadet for a while, and that was somewhat restricting because I could only get drunk on weekends. And I did, and I had a lot of fun. Strange things would happen, and they were always enjoyable to talk about. I remember one night I got in a quiz contest on some radio program in a hotel lobby, and I won a linoleum rug, which I carried around with me every evening. As I look back, nearly every place I reported to, I was either drinking or hungover, and every place I left to get transferred to another station, I was either drunk or drinking. I can remember reporting to a base in California after a two-week leave in Sacramento, showing up with a very bad hangover, very confused. One side of my face was a network of scratches which had been provided by a young lady in Sacramento I had been sponsoring. I didn't feel that my life was unmanageable, but I was starting to have quite a bit of hard luck. I finally got commissioned, and life got a little better because now I could get drunk every night. And I had a regular routine. I'd get drunk nine nights in a row, and on the tenth night, I'd go to bed about six or seven o'clock. And I'd get about 12 hours sleep, and then I'd be good for another nine nights in a row. I never drank in the morning because I'd drink till about two and get up at six to fly, and you didn't need a drink. You just needed a seeing-eyed dog to find your airplane. I flew seaplanes, and it looked like a basketball taking off on the bay there. I, as I look back, I suspect that my alcoholism reached its peak because of the anxiety and tension that resulted from flying those hazardous missions over the Gulf of Mexico looking for Nazi submarines. I destroyed two aircraft in World War II. Unfortunately, they both belonged to the United States Navy. <laughs> An old friend of mine pointed out that if I'd gotten three more, I would have been a Japanese ace. <laughs> so I was drinking along and flying along, and I'd get up every morning and take my gagging exercises, and I thought, man, this is really living. I wound up in the hospital with pneumonia, which turned into DTs. <laughs> I had a few visions, which is all right. I come from a long line of Lutheran ministers, and I was named for St. Paul. <laughs> but I had a real good drinking room there. There were three of us who, if we weren't alcoholics, had a drinking problem. I was 23 at this point, and one of them was a pilot in the photo squadron who'd been brought in about... Two or three in the morning, he'd gotten drunk, gone swimming, cut his big toe open on a piece of submerged metal. He came in feeling very happy, and came in with a young lady that we assumed was his wife. The next day, his wife showed up, and it was somebody else. The rest of the time I was in the hospital, his wife and his girlfriend used to visit him, and they never met. And we decided that just goes to show that if you live right, the Lord will take care of you. <laughs> You know, we've had a few problems in our government. I just found out the other day really what's been wrong. Nixon had too many Germans in his administration. He should have had Japanese for three reasons. One, 
They're better at electronics. <laughs> Two, when they make a mistake, they admit it. And three, after they admit a mistake, they commit Harry Carey. Japanese businessman came into Chicago the other day and his eyes began to bother him after a couple of weeks and he went to an eye specialist who examined him carefully and leaned back and he said, you have a cataract. The Japanese said, oh no, I have Rincon Continental. <laughs> I try to stay away from doctors and I'll tell you, I found something that really made me realize why. They had a man in a hospital near where I lived for three weeks treated for yellow jaundice before they found out he was Chinese. <laughs> I was in that hospital for four weeks, and I got drunk nine of the last ten nights I was a patient in the hospital. That tells you something about my intelligence. I think that real intelligence has absolutely nothing to do with education or IQ. I think it has everything to do with a recognition of where my salvation lies. And that's an old-fashioned word. I think that salvation is a process, not an event. I have to keep working at it with your help in these steps. But my salvation lies right here in this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, this eccentric fraternity we call AA. I got drunk nine out of the last ten nights I was in that hospital. I got out, I went back to flying, <clears throat> got sent to another base, wound up at Norfolk Naval Air Station in November of 1945, and the war had ended. And I went home to Great Lakes and got separated on 8th of December, 1945, <clears throat> and traveled for three days and three nights and got back to Oak Park, which is about 60 miles away from there. <laughs> By now, a little truth was glimmering through my dandruff, and I thought, I've got to do something about my drinking, but not quite yet. I decided that after New Year's, I would sober up, but I was going to go to Cincinnati and get drunk over New Year's, and I wound up in Milwaukee, by mistake, for three days, and I came back from Milwaukee on New Year's Day on the train, and I had one of those paralyzing hangovers, and I thought, I've got to do something about my drinking. I'd hit a bottom of sorts. I'd wound up with what had to be the worst-looking woman in the Middle West. <laughs> Years later, I saw those 20 questions. It said, do you seek lower companions when you drink? I said, absolutely. <laughs> a little more time passed. I realized I not only sought them, I had become a lower companion. She looked like my judo instructor, except he didn't have a mustache. She looked like a million dollars, and the only reason I say that is because I have never seen a million dollars, and she looked like something I never saw before. <laughs> so I decided I would stop drinking, and I knew I needed something to do to keep me away from booze, so I decided I would do some boxing again. I couldn't say I was going to make drinking. And I knew I needed something to do to keep me away from booze, so I decided I would do some boxing again. I couldn't say I was going to make a comeback because I'd never been anywhere. <laughs> but I got a hold of a man that used to train me. He was so crooked he'd steal a hot stove and then come back for the smoke, but it was the best I could do under the conditions. And I got in as good shape as I could, and I did some boxing and got my nose broken again. That was always happening to me. And after about six weeks, a friend of mine and I went up to the air station at Glenview to fly. It started to snow, the field closed in, and we went into Chicago to have a few drinks. We got drunk, he passed out. He lived out in a town called St. Charles, which was about 35 miles west of Chicago, and I wasn't too sure how to get there. So I was driving out North Avenue, which went in that general direction, and I would stop in saloons along the way, get a bottle of beer, ask directions, get in the car and drive and drink my beer. And one of these saloons, I walked in and there was a dog lying on the floor. I said hello to the dog and the dog bit me on the leg. <laughs> I didn't think anything of it till a couple of days later I'd gotten my nose broken. I went to see the doctor. 
and casually mentioned this, and he got very upset. He said, you find that dog. Well, I really wasn't sure where that dog had been. So I went back to these various saloons around North Avenue, and I'd stop in and say, did you have a dog that bit me the other night? I said, no. So I wound up taking rabies shots for three weeks after that. Just to be on the safe side, I made out a list of people to bite in case they didn't work. <laughs> All of this is kind of funny to me now. It was not funny at the time because I was scared out of my mind all the time. On those times when I did work, it took more than half an hour for lunch, they had to retrain me. <laughs> I can remember being sober for a week and not being able to write my name. I can remember being sober for a week and trying to cross the street and I jump away from a car that was a block away, literally. I can remember waking up in the morning and pulling the pillow over my head because I was so afraid of whatever was out there. Or going to sleep and waking up after two or three hours in the middle of the night and wishing it would never get light. And I started to look for answers. And I began to read, which is kind of my direction. And I read Seal and Peel and Link and think, and they all told me these things that I was supposed to be, and I would say, yes, indeed. And they never told me how to get from where I was to where they said I should be and where I wanted to be. God, I was tired of being in that condition, but I didn't know what else to do. I read a book by a psychiatrist from New York named Dr. Charles Spencer Coles, and he said we became alcoholic because we had too much pressure on the brain. And he said, you make a spinal tap and you relieve some of this pressure. The alcoholic no longer has his compulsion to drink, and he has a beautiful personality. And I thought, man, that's for me. And I wrote him and I said, is there anybody around Chicago who can tap my brain? <laughs> and he wrote back and said, no, unfortunately, there's no one there that can do that. And he sent some thinly veiled references to AA and some things he had written about these alcoholics who stay sober by reveling in the sawdust of their emotions. They substitute an emotional debauch in these meetings for the old alcoholic debauch, and I thought, those poor people, little realizing that a little while later I'd be right there. I read Liebman's Peace of Mind, and I was heavily influenced by that until I found out he committed suicide. <laughs> And I tried to sell my book. And I read Dorothea Brandy's Wake Up and Live, and she said, act as if it's impossible to fail. Did you ever try that with the dry heaves? <laughs> it just don't work. And I read all of these things, and I made all of these experiments, and I drank only after 5 o'clock and only on weekends. And finally, on January of 1947, I quit forever. Forever turned out to be only three months. I spent seven years of my AA life after I got sober working on overseas construction. I worked in northern Alaska, northern Greenland, over in Iceland. A lot of that time my companion was the big book. But on this business of forever, one of my friends in Iceland was romancing with an Icelandic girl there. <clears throat> and one day she said, I'll love you forever. And he said, how long is forever? She said, till the day after you leave. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, there's real honesty. But I quit forever, and forever turned out to be three months. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I couldn't drink. My father was an alcoholic. He was a Lutheran minister who became a fundraiser and also was an alky. He got sober on his own perhaps 10 or 12 years before he died. But I got drunk after three months of sobriety, knowing that I was an alcoholic, I took one drink at a party because I was unable to refuse it, and I said, tomorrow I'll jump back on the wagon. And the next day I woke up, and the wagon was gone, and I chased it for four months all over Chicago. And I couldn't get sober. And everything that had happened was worse than it had ever been, and the fun was gone. For the last two years I drank. Drinking was not fun. I pursued that vain alcoholic delusion that I can make it, arrange it the way it used to be. And of course, this is an impossibility. I'm an alcoholic and I'll always be an alcoholic. 
And if I were to quit going to meetings and quit listening to the truth that you people tell me, once again I would forget and drink. But in that four months that I was drunk, I learned the second half of the lesson. Number one, I can't drink, but that's not enough. If I'm to stay sober, I need some help. When I got drunk, and after a week, I was sober after four months of drinking. I got drunk, and it wasn't the worst drunk I was ever on. I didn't get in any trouble. But it did one thing for me that nothing had done before. I quit lying. No longer could I lie about the sadness and the stupidity of my condition, and no longer could I blame other people for what I had done to myself. Finally, I saw enough truth that after being sober a week, I called AA. And I talked to a man who was sober for five years. And he told me about what AA had done for him after he had told me what booze had done to him. He said, I don't know what you believe in, and I believed in nothing. This was a Saturday. He said, tomorrow morning there's a meeting at the Austin YMCA, and that's on the west side of Chicago. He said, if you'd like to go, I'll be glad to take you. And I went, and there were 60 or 70 men men and women there. Somebody talked. Some people commented. He told me they were all alcoholics, and they were staying sober. And I walked out of that meeting, and nothing was changed. I didn't feel any different, and apparently nothing had happened. But something had happened because I haven't had a drink since. You people and people like you stretched out your hands and you said, how can we help? And I began to stay sober. And I was very grateful as I stuck around these meetings to find that nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous argued about whose higher power is higher. I thought this is fantastic because the way I had been brought up, they said, if you don't believe this way, son, you're liable to be a participant in an eternal marshmallow roast and you're going to be one of the marshmallows. (laughs) I started to go to meetings and I started to talk about honesty. Long time after that, I ran across two lines in the big book, which I think are tremendously important. One is, our real purpose is to become of maximum service to God and the people about us. The other is, we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. I think I can help another only to the extent that I have been helped myself in these 12 steps. I cannot give away what I don't have. And whatever I get, I'm going to get through working and reworking and then working some more in these 12 steps. Because when I look at sponsorship at the time the book was written, I find that, that, that Bill took the equivalent of the first eight steps. Within the first few days, he was sober. There were no steps at that time, but these principles, he worked the equivalent of steps one through eight within the first few days he was sober. And so did Dr. Bob. And Earl Treat, the first AA in Chicago, worked the first eight steps within the first three weeks he was sober. And I think that's sponsorship, which will create a tremendous change within the individual. Because I don't change, I don't believe, by simply reading and talking about the things that I did a long time ago. I change by continuing to do these things. And that's what I began to see as time passed. I went to these meetings. I heard about honesty. I talked about honesty. And after about a year of sobriety, I found myself in a great deal of trouble because of a dishonest business deal. And I went to some friends of mine in the program. And I said, I wonder if I've missed something in this program. They said, son, you missed the whole program. You kept such an open mind that the whole program just blew right through. (laughs) So I read chapter 5, and I took a a written inventory, and I got a look at myself I have never had before. And a little later, I took a fifth step with another AA. And at that point, I began to experience precisely what the book says we do experience. I began to have a spiritual awakening. I began to understand the program in a way I hadn't and never would without that kind of work. 
And I went ahead and listed the people I harmed, and I made amends to them. And I began to work with prayer and meditation. And I spent that seven years working out of the country. A lot of that time, I had to read a chapter of the book every day because there were no groups. We did have an unusual group up in Point Barrow, Alaska, where I was. Nick, an AA up there whose father is Jewish and his mother is Eskimo, says he's the program's only Juskimo, and to my knowledge, this is correct. Need a little water. I'm getting a few hot flashes here this morning. <laughs> My age, you've got two problems. One is a bad memory, and I can't remember what the other problem is. <laughs> you probably heard about the man that got to be about 70, and his life was so dull and uninteresting. His wife had left him. His kids moved out. He'd worked 80 hours a week all of his life, so he got his face lifted, bought a new toupee, a new Mercedes, 18 expensive new suits, First day, got the whole thing together. He put on the toupee, a new suit, got in a Mercedes, and he drove three blocks. He got killed in an automobile wreck, and he went to heaven. He said, Lord, it just isn't fair. All my life I've worked hard. I never had any fun. The first day I'm going to enjoy life, I got killed. Why did you let it happen? The Lord said, well, to tell you the truth, Charlie, I didn't recognize you. But I read this big book many times while I was out of the country. I still read it, and I still find things in there that I had never seen before. They've been there. I've read them. But as I change, my understanding changes. I came back around the Chicago area about 58 or 59 and became active in AA. I was still kind of a mystic and a philosopher without portfolio. And... I got very active in what I would call the business end of AA. Now, we know that nobody in AA ever runs for anything. We just make ourselves available, quietly, shyly, humbly. And for a while, I was the most available alcoholic you ever saw. And I got into the general service activities, and I started running conferences, and I became the delegate to New York. And I ran into a strange phenomenon. There were a lot of people who didn't want to do things my way. I've always had trouble understanding that. And so I wound up with a lot of damaged relationships with other people. Sometimes said that the ego is like a baby. It's got a tremendous appetite on one end and no sense of responsibility on the other. <laughs> and I can tell you that describes mine. What I've got to talk about now is no tribute to my intelligence or to my spirituality but this is me, and that's all you and I have to begin with if we're going to know each other. I spent a great deal of time in those years and since proving the truth in the adage that the higher the ape climbs, the more he displays his backside. <laughs> so I found myself sober with quite a few years of sobriety and not in the kind of condition that I should be. I had some resentments. I didn't have the energy I should have because what I found is that if I've got bad relationships with other people or if I have not done enough continuing work with the cleanup steps, four and five, that I get things within me which make me sick. And it takes energy to deal with these things, to keep them out of my consciousness so I can live and do whatever I've got to do. If, on the other hand, I clean these things out, it releases this energy and I get a little saner and a little more useful, and I can work better in my job or with other people. And I had some bad relationships with people that I kind of knew about. I didn't really want to look at them because I figured if I looked at them, I'd have to do something about them. And after a meeting in 1968, I was sitting with a couple of AAs I knew, and one of them was a man I sponsored, and he was sober three years at that time. And I had really given him a workout on these steps, and he had done a tremendous job with them, with all of them. And I said, uh, what do you think I ought to do about these things within me? I'm not in as good shape as I should be with 21 years of sobriety. And with his three years, he said, why don't you make out a new list of people you have harmed and go around and make amends to them? Well, you know, that was not really what I wanted to hear. 
I've gotten an awful lot of help in AA. I wish I hadn't gotten at the time. But I thought, son, if you're going to ask for help, you better follow the directions. So I wrote out a new eighth step. And I went around and I started to make amends to some of these people. Maybe a dozen of them were on that first list. And these are all things that I'd done since I'd been sober because I had wanted to be one of the important people in AA. Now, why anybody in his right mind would want to be important in a bunch of drunks, I don't know. I guess it indicates that I'm not always in my right mind. But I made amends to maybe a dozen of these people, and most of them received it the way I expected. A couple of them told me I was no good, never had been any good, and never would be any good, which really didn't bother me because I didn't really believe them. But I found that this did make some changes and improvements within me. Because I think we're nourished by good relationships with other people. And I think that we're poisoned with bad relationships. And this then led me to something I had been trying to deal with unsuccessfully for a number of years. And that was a damaged relationship with my father. I hadn't seen him since I was 19 years old when I left that little town down in South Georgia. In October of 68, I was in a business convention in Miami, and I had called him up from time to time, long distance, to suggest that we get together, and he had always said no, he didn't want to do that. And this time I called from Miami, and I had picked the name of the secretary of the group out of the World Service Directory. There was a man in AA, and I used to play baseball with him when I was a kid. And I told him what I want to do, and Jimmy said, what can I do? I said, I don't know. He was a judge in that town, so I went to see him in the courthouse that Saturday morning that I got there. In the 27 years I had been gone, this little town had mushroomed from a population of 4,000 to 5,000. <laughs> I wish I looked as good after all those years as that town did. So I talked with Jimmy, and I think that my father's drinking caused an awful lot of trouble in our lives. For a number of years, I had a lot of resentment and a lot of self-pity, which had worked its way out as I began to realize that parents and everybody else in this world do the best they can. And he had a booze problem, and he got sober on his own. He never had the blessing that you and I have in these 12 steps. But I think that wherever I have a significant relationship in my life, even if I'm the one who perhaps is not been primarily at fault, it's to my advantage to straighten it out. So I went over to where he was living and I rang the doorbell and I didn't really know how to start. So I made an amend to him and then I told him who I was and I said, I'd like to come in and talk to you. So he said, come in. And we talked for perhaps 25 minutes and it went pretty well and I think the reason it went as well as it did was because I had first been to see and get straightened out with those 12 people around Chicago. What I never could see for many years is that my life is a totality, that everything is connected to everything else. <clears throat> and if it's sick over here, it's going to be sick over here. And if I do some work in this part of my life to make it healthy, it will have some unexpected beneficial results in another part of my life. And I went home very grateful that I had been there. And in March of 69, I went to see him again unannounced. And we visited a while, and there were many things tied up in those, that relationship in those years which worked themselves out just by trying to make it better. We have some wonderful sayings in AA that I think get twisted out of shape, and one of them is, easy does it. Two weeks after that second visit, well, a couple of days after that second visit in March of 69, I was home having a quiet time in my apartment in Riverside, and it was as if a big layer of my life had peeled away that had been tied up in that relationship, and as it continued to get better, I saw perhaps ten more names that went on my list of people I had harmed, which were from before I sobered up, and that somehow or other had been locked up in that relationship, and as I made that better, I could see more that I could do to get better myself. Everything is connected to everything else. And two weeks after that second visit, Easter Sunday, 1969, my father died. And I went to his funeral, very grateful that I had been to see him when I had. 
Because if I hadn't, I would have never seen him alive, perhaps never known that he was dead, and certainly have missed a tremendous chance to get a little healthier as a human being. It's all here in the program. But I have to listen to you, because you've told me what I know about living. If it hadn't been for that man with three years of sobriety who told me the truth, perhaps I would have never done these things. Everything I know about living, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to work regularly and frequently with all of these steps. I try to work regularly with prayer and meditation and praying only for knowledge of his will. There's a lot of literature that tells you how to use prayer to get your own way. And all I can say is I don't think that's what it's about. God will enable me to become what I'm supposed to be if I'll spend some time each day in prayer and meditation, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. I think it's like pure research. In industry, pure research means that they don't try to find anything specific for applications for new toasters or better carburetors or cheaper gas, hopefully, but that they just look for scientific truth. And this is translated into specific things. And I find that if I just spend some time each day sitting quietly and trying to turn my mind to God, this is translated into specific knowledge in what I should do each day. And this leads me to the message, which is a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and that's all I have to continue to do. And with your help, I can hopefully practice these principles in all my affairs. Because I believe that these are the directions and I'm only going to get the results if I follow the directions. If I were in a plane flying at 30,000 feet and it caught on fire and somebody rushed up to me with a parachute, said, put this on, go through that escape hatch and save your life, what do you suppose I would do? Would I say, let's discuss the philosophical implications of this situation? Or would I say, nobody's going to tell me what to do? Or would I go through the hatch without a chute hollering, this is an individual program? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd follow the directions and hope that the shoot worked. Eddie mentioned the promises last night, and I think these are tremendous. And I'm just going to quickly go through them because every time I read them, I am reminded of what is available here starting with sobriety because that's where it begins. If I will work these steps and continue to work hard with them, here's what I'll get. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. How is that for a guarantee on what you and I can have one day at a time, each day of our lives? And it's all here. Just like it says on page 562, I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. And all I have to do is follow these directions. It's a story about a little girl who was lost in this North Dakota town one winter, and they searched all afternoon and all night. And the next morning, the father said, I'm sure she's in this field. Let's all join hands and walk across the field, and we'll find her. And they joined hands, and about three-quarters of the way across the field, they found the little girl, and she was frozen. And the father picked her up, and he said, isn't it too bad that we didn't all join hands sooner? 
And speaking from my own experience, isn't it too bad that so often my ego gets in the way of my usefulness and I fail to join hands and do the jobs that I might do in Alcoholics Anonymous? When I came to AA, I can look back at your outstretched hand saying, how can we help as the hand of God? But when that new person stretches out that shaking, frightened hand, this too is the hand of God. And if gratitude is more than a word with me, I'll try to be here and be in the condition so I can pass on to that new person what you have given me. Thank you very much.